On this episode of Progressive Palaver, the group discusses from Genesis to Revelation. Progressive Palaver, a group of lifelong friends and appreciators of music, discussing the greatest progressive rock bands album by album. I'm Joe Beauclair, and on this episode of Palaver, I'm joined by my very good friends Paul Zotter and Ken Gregory as we finally start the Genesis catalog, starting at the beginning, from Genesis to Revelation. Finally, finally, after months and months of of threatening each other with it, we finally get to talk about Genesis. Um, you know, in in the pantheon of of progressive rock biggies, and it it depends how you want to slice it up. Um, I've heard anywhere from you know, like five to to seven or eight. Genesis are always in there, um, and and what I find interesting about this and progressive rock in particular you know if you think about the, the obvious biggies genesis yes and and pink floyd king crimson always gets put in there jethro tull each one of those bands is undeniably prog whatever exactly that means and we've all we all know what what that conversation's about however they're each really different from each other they they all have their own identity and their own sort of spin or interpretation on what progressive rock is, which I think maybe that's actually part of the whole progressive rock thing. I just find it very, very fascinating. You know, there, there's, there's nothing really like that. It's a little bit more subtle than that, although... There's no Getty... There's yeah, there's 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 no Getty making you climb the walls, you know. Oh, Rush is the other one that's in the Pantheon. So you know, there's it, it's it's all pretty. It, it's it's all well measured, if that's the right word. And I I think that in a lot of ways lends Genesis to being very accessible to most people. I think maybe some of the early stuff with Peter Gabriel, maybe less so. But even once you get into that. I think it's, you know, it's it's not really overwhelming. With the exception of Supper's Ready, they never went totally crazy into the, you know, the 20-minute song um, thing. Uh, you know, there's, there's just, but at the same time, it's all spectacular. And it's, it's all very prog. And, you know, as we get into it uh, later on in the catalog, you know, one of the things that strikes me about Genesis in particular is, is how understated, I think, Mike Rutherford is for the most part. There are other people who could have been put into the position he was in and just made it all about him. And he <laughs> doesn't do that, which is, you know, I, I just, I find it to be fascinating. Totally, totally fascinating. Now, what I will say, one of the things that I have sort of come to the realization as I've been going through this catalog in preparation for this is I do think just through all of the changes and everything that Genesis went through, if there is a central cog in the machine, that central cog is Tony Banks. And I don't know if oh yeah, if, 
if yeah. Tony Banks is the central cog because he has, you know, sort of that ability that maybe sets him apart, or if he has the ego that wanted it to be all about Tony. But it, 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 a lot of the, you know, a lot of the melodies, a lot of the solos, everything is really driven by Tony. Oh, yeah. And that, that's evident on this album. Can't wait to talk about it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, now, you know, I, I guess when we always do our preamble, we always talk about, you know, how we got into to the, the band in question. You know, Genesis, given our age, it's pretty obvious where we came in. Chances are it was somewhere between the self-titled Genesis album and Invisible Touch would be my guess. For me personally, it was, it started with the Genesis album. This was at the time when that came out that my brother Dave was recording mixtapes off the radio. And I remember Mama specifically. And, but it was, it, it was actually Home by the Sea that mm. excited my little brain. Absolutely, absolutely mm. loved it. And so by the time you know, Invisible Touch came out, I was, I was on board. We had a friend in high school who was very learned in old Genesis. She was deep, deep into old Genesis. And it was like, you know, I can remember, I knew Peter Gabriel and I knew Genesis. I don't exactly remember at what point I put together that, you know, Peter Gabriel used to be in Genesis. I do remember getting into Peter Gabriel's third album and figuring out that Phil Collins played on that. My brain falls out of my head a little bit. And, you know, mm. it, it, once you start, because where we came in, it wasn't immediately obvious, all of these connections. It all makes sense when you look back on it. So I was exposed to some of the early Genesis, but much like early Yes at that age, I wasn't really ready for it. I actually listened to Foxtrot a lot simply because I felt that I needed to. I, I should. It was what people like me did, but I didn't really get it until later on in life. Hmm. Um, and then obviously, you know, by the time, what was it? 92 that we can't dance came out. I think it was. Yeah. About that. Yeah. Um, you know, I was, I, I'd figured most of it out and I remember <clears throat> my advisor at Delaware got me tickets to that show. Um, and it was, it was like the highlight of my life at that point to be able to see Genesis. Cause it wasn't hmm. something I thought that I would do. I mean, we'd been spoiled at that point, having probably seen yes, what four or five, six times, if not more. And Genesis just, it wasn't, they didn't, they didn't tour that much in, in that hmm. era. So, um, so that was, that was for me a really, really cool thing. Um, and then, like I said, going back into it now and, and looking at all these albums and, and seeing, you know, when Phil and, and Steve came into the band and when Peter left and, and all of the permutations that went, they went through. And even, even when Phil left the band, you know, I know a lot of people don't really care for calling all stations, but I don't really mind it that much. My experience was different. Uh, I, I distinctly recall out of the cab and turn it on again. 
uh, on rock radio. Uh, I was, I didn't purchase the albums, but definitely mesmerized, impressed with those tunes. In fact, Paul, do you remember in high school, the Jack Bromley band getting a slot on the stage in the main auditorium? Sure did. Um, and doing a Genesis tune. Do you know which one that was? Yeah, Norm Boogle was in that band too. It was Turn It On Again. Yeah, for sure. Really? Yeah. Right, and Nate Pearden was the keyboard player. Mm. Pretty yeah. cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, I, I mentioned this during our uh, Stephen Wilson uh, thing. Stephen Wilson was that age where he was like older than us, and it was like, oh my God, can, can I ever possibly learn what, what these older guys have learned? It's really intimidating. But yeah, when we were we were freshmen in high school. We were watching the older kids doing covering Genesis on stage. It was brilliant. Oh, oh, oh! Because we we played in the talent show before they did. I think I think that's what that was. I, I think, think that may new- have. I want to say that may have been that what may have been before we played in the talent show. I can't remember. I I, I don't remember now. But I do remember it, what you're saying. Yes. Oh my God! They did U2's Gloria and they nailed that. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yep. <clears throat> yeah, it was good stuff. Ken, I don't know if you remember in high school you dragging me to see Genesis in concert at the Spectrum um, on really? the on the uh, Invisible Touch tour, I believe so. Joe, you dragged me uh, a couple of years later to see Phil Collins solo. Um, that was great. Well. That was a great show. Yeah. Well, it was great yeah. just because of where we were sitting. And, and well, yes. I, I don't even remember it. It was like a total last minute thing. I'm like, hey, let's go see Phil Collins. Yeah. And, and we ended up getting seats like sort of up high, but right behind Phil's drum kit. Yeah. Which yeah. was exactly yeah. where I wanted to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was a that was a terrific show. And and the um while I had experienced some Genesis similar maybe maybe in some some familiar ways, like the Abacab and the the uh misunderstanding the hit from uh duke my sisters had those albums and they played the hits from those records so i was exposed to genesis i knew who they were i didn't really get into them until and i actually knew all of the hits from the genesis album so that was kind of the interesting thing for me about genesis is that you knew a heck of a lot of them by not without even trying uh growing up right because they because by the time the self-titled album came out, there were so many hits. They were on the radio so often. It was kind of like the Eagles. You, you just kind of got to know the band over the years without even realizing it. And Ken and I go to see Invisible Touch. And it's like I know almost every song they're playing because just because of the hits, right? Yep. And I think that, Ken, you had suggested to me that Domino was a really cool track it was like the only track on there that was like similar to their older material and domino really impacted me that night at that show and then i continued to go and want to see uh, to hear more so i got invisible touch and then started down the path of of hoarding through my sister's albums and picking up some some other things and i want to say later that year I'm not sure who all went. We probably a bunch of us together went and saw that same tour at the at Veterans Stadium. Yeah. yeah, it wasn't as good at the vet. It was wasn't wasn't as I think Paul Young opened up actually. Um, probably wasn't as good. However, I think I appreciated more of it. And it was at that concert where 
everyone they did that medley at the end with all the old stuff mm-hmm. and uh, you know i somebody one of you told me oh they played some of supper's ready that's like the greatest you know the big long track and i was you know just starting to get into yes so i was like well i need to i need to listen to supper's ready so i went <laughs> to find out what album that was on and i and i bought foxtrot on cassette and unbeknownst to me that you know i bought in my opinion, the greatest Peter Gabriel era Genesis album right there. And mm-hmm. just was like blown away by it. And, and, and so it, you know, it, it, it was a different, a different kind of exposure similar to yes, where you like, except that, you know, all these hits and then all of a sudden you're, you're kind of thrust into this whole other world and and it was so weird too because at the same time I was getting into Peter Gabriel so and I was going to see him and Peter Gabriel's plays live that album so I had a, a certain feeling about what and who Peter Gabriel was so to hear him on something like Foxtrot was just mind blowing and mm-hmm. um and then everything's just kind of evolved from there uh, for me I, it, on a side note after having a lot of these discussions with you guys, I would really like to conduct like a focus group study <laughs> to <laughs> retrospectively examine the impact of mixtapes on the promulgation of progressive rock music. Because I think they're extremely responsible for progressive rock reaching a much wider audience than it ever would have just based on our discussions. That would be interesting. Yeah. Yeah. How many so, times have we said somebody made a mixtape when I heard this song? <laughs> <laughs> you know, what? the interesting thing, and, and we made mention about this probably back in the Yes catalog, you know, that the 20-minute the, the gold standard was, was driven by the capacity of side of vinyl. Once you got into right. cassette, that wasn't mm. the case anymore. And um, you had the ability to sort of go beyond. But yet, at that point, you know, the, the measurement was set. One one quick thing that I want to just, I can't hold on to it. Uh, it's not a big secret because it's, um, it's in Mike Rutherford's book. But it was one of the funniest things that I came across when I was reading that book, The Living Years. Um, when he's talking about Duke, he says here, the high was turned it on again, which came from a riff that I'd had left over from Small Creep's Day, and which I always thought was in 4-4 until Phil told me it was in 13-8. One of, the, one of the, the sort of overarching statements that I wanted to make here, because as we go through the, the Genesis catalog and we go from 5 to 4 to 3-man Genesis, and into the heady days of the late 80s. Um, and again, I think we made the, the comment earlier, it was like 1989 that Genesis, Peter Gabriel, and GTR featuring Steve Hackett all topped the charts. How amazing was that? Yeah. Mm, just, yeah. just think about that well, for a second. Well, topping the charts might be a little hyperbolic when you're considering GTR, but... No, When the yeah. World of Mind was, was up there. And it was, was it? 
Yeah, it was all, okay. in, in I think it's in, Great in Rutherford's song. book. We'll get there. I'll um, tell you what, I love the Steve Hackett re-version re of that, the, the recent one. I haven't heard it. Uh, oh, it fucking kicks ass. Awesome. Mm. Oh, my gosh. But but as we go through the Genesis catalog, there's going to be changes. Um, you know, much like we had to deal with with Rush, and even, even as we finished up, um, with the Yes catalog, when you start to get the band doing different things. And there are very, very strong opinions about where Genesis wound up and quote-unquote whose fault that was and and everything else, given... And, and, and that can often be obscured by the fact that, you know, Phil had this huge, equally huge solo career running parallel to that. And what Phil did solo was decidedly not proggy after, I would say, probably the second album. Um, and, and Phil was interested in different subject matters and everything else. And so we'll have that conversation when we get to it. But what I just wanted to make the statement here up front at the very start of this Genesis segment of the Palaver is that whatever you think about Phil as as frontman, Phil as, you know, providing whatever direction he did or didn't to the band, Phil Collins is a phenomenal drummer. Just I think he's he's sublime. And I have enjoyed everything he's played from the time he joined um, for Nursery Crime all the way through to We Can't Dance. Mm. Yeah, I, I'm going to be interested to hear if anyone on the Palaver thinks differently about his drumming. I mean, I, I think he's exceptional. I'll Wait, go even isn't he on Trespass? He is not on Trespass. Mm -mm. God damn. All right, I better do my homework. <laughs> he, the the I'll go one step further and just say that he is a phenomenal a lot of things: um, drumming, singing, writing, composing, performing, acting. I mean, the guy just you know again, like you said, you can think whatever you want to about him. You cannot deny his brilliance on multiple levels and i and i really don't understand i mean i i mean, i shouldn't say that i guess i do understand I, it sort of drives me crazy that when you have a band with so many different variations so much amazing material that you have to s complain about the quote-unquote phil collins era right because there's a few pop songs in there yeah like uh, who gives a shit that's why you that's that's why you know the best thing about it was when that really started to get annoying they had those cassette things in your car where you could like hit a button and it would automatically find the space for the next song that's right yeah <laughs> you could skip it just like you do now <laughs> and then when you got cds it wasn't even a problem it was not a problem so and and you know, I, and I have an opinion that may not be felt by many, but it, it's almost a natural progression. Like if you are, just, you know, when you're ultra artistic and if you, if I look at the Phil Collins arc and I, like, if I am not up to date on my yes lore, I don't know a damn thing about Genesis lore at all. 
which is why I'm really excited to go through this process because I've already found a couple of cool videos that I started watching that I'm like, oh, this is going to be sweet. So I'm really excited to learn um, some of the stuff about, about Genesis as we go. I think that, you know, there is a progression. Someone like Phil Collins, if I look at his arc and I think about what it must be like to achieve all of those things, and he always seems to be looking for a different challenge and to do different things and to continue doing things. We've talked about that arc of creativity, right? There is a certain point where I think it becomes more difficult to write a popular song that is packaged and is available and, and, and the, the ability to write a song that is going to connect with literally millions of people becomes more difficult than jamming out in 13.8 and, and, and just being artsy, right? Mm-hmm. And, and he did both of those things extremely well. And I and I think that there you can appreciate it. For me, all the way up to "We Can't Dance." At "We Can't Dance," some of those songs get a little bit, you know. But even probably one of their most poppy songs is one of my favorite songs on that album. So uh, I just don't understand the, the sort of the the hate speech about the Phil Collins era Genesis hits, whatever. Um, I'm gonna look forward to battling tom on those as we go forward i maybe you guys too i don't know not not me um what i have found in the genesis catalog is whatever album i put on now there are some albums i will put on more frequently than others but i will i i have and i continue to listen to all of them and even the the I have a Tormato moment in in the Genesis catalog, but even in that one, I don't skip any of these tracks, hmm. any of them, ever. I you know whatever album I'm listening to, I will listen to it all the way through. So wow. I, I have, you know, I, I made a comment in the text the other day about, and I forget how exactly I said it, but some of the some of the shenanigans that they do so the the silly stuff the the herald the barrel the um you know half you know stuff. what i like in my wardrobe yeah um you know even illegal alien is 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 a later example of of the shenanigans song even even while that isn't necessarily you know my taste often it, it i they still do it in a way that I can enjoy it and listen to it. So, and and mm. I, I will point out here again, just sort of looking farther and farther ahead, it, illegal alien is really terribly offensive. <laughs> and, 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 and the, you know, in, in the modern lens, um, it's it's amazing that they were able to make that video back in in the early eighties. <laughs> <laughs> because oh. you could you could never you would never want to do that today <laughs> absolutely amazing hmm, that'll be interesting to uh to visit that when when we get there yeah yeah absolutely um so the other thing that i wanted to mention at the beginning and i i think i shared this with you guys on on the group chat not spending a, a 
terrific amount of time on early, you know, Gabriel era Genesis other than Foxtrot. As I've, you know, started to just sample along and, and try to, you know, listen to things and, and get more familiar with them, it, 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 it it's just fell on me like a giant cinder block how much the fish era Marillion sounds like some of this early Genesis stuff. And it's like hauntingly scary. And, and I never quite understood the, the compare, like the, the stark comparisons to the early Genesis and how, you know, people seem to be like, ah, oh, they're just a rip off of Genesis. But after the last couple of weeks of preparing for just to get started, I was like, Oh shit. Yeah. And I think I mentioned to you guys, had I been that familiar with some of that early Genesis stuff at the time that I started to get into Marillion, I probably would have just stopped and been like, yeah, I'm not listening to these guys. Yeah. Isn't, isn't that amazing? I mean, you know, I had, I don't know that I had ever believed all of those, you know, accusations as well, because like you, I, I don't know that I was particularly familiar with, with the early era Genesis, but as I started listening to this and, and certainly um, the lamb lies down on Broadway, has has a lot of that it's not just fish and the lyrics it's also i mean the whole band was complicit in this i mean there are stretches of the lamb that may as well you know i i, I should say there are stretches of of the first few marillion albums which seem to be lifted wholesale from the lamb lies down on broadway it's it, it's amazing and and yeah like you i you know i wonder if i would have been as into marillion if I had known, you know, how derivative some of it could be, but you know, it, it's not like it happened just two years before. I mean, presumably this was something that they had, you know, grown up quote unquote, um, listening to. And, you know, I think they were, you know, maybe paying homage. Yeah. The, so the, it's interesting, Joe, too, that you talked about the pantheon of progressive rock bands and, you it, it's it's always interesting to me, like all these bands that you mentioned, they're always there's those couple of albums early on that, you know, not, you know, only the diehard fans really know. And then there's usually some sort of breakthrough album and then they kind of go. I think almost every single one of these bands that we've talked about has that kind of that 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 bit. Right. And I find it interesting that, and again, I, I may not know all of the, the the catalogs of all the bands that we'll talk through, but I find it interesting that Genesis really, they kind of started as a pop band, you know, uh, at least in my, my estimation, they kind of started trying to be like a commercial pop band, and then they went completely the other way, and they kind of ended, you know, on a more commercial side of things in the long yes, run. Yes, did the same thing. Just, 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 you know, I, I don't, well, I mean, I, when well, I think John of, when Anderson I think of, was in one of those poppy thingy thingies before you check out the videos before, uh, yes. I mean, but I, but I'm talking about like, yes, like when I listen to the, the, I mean, I guess you're right. It's a, it's a little, it's not quite as proggy, right. The, but it doesn't really feel like, like pop music at the time, kind of the way, like, I feel like the first Genesis album does. Yeah. I, I you know, I hadn't ever heard the whole Bee Gees thing until I started doing, you know, my research for this. And I was like, oh, that's very interesting. But when you go into Rutherford's book, 
the living years. And he talks about this. You know, I, I don't know that they set out necessarily to be a pop band. They had been writing songs that that they liked, and they were trying to they, they were trying to get signed by, and they were trying to work with with Jonathan King. And apparently, he just really wasn't into what they were what they were doing, and so they ended up writing the Silent Sun specifically to sound like the Bee Gees, so that Jonathan King would keep them around. I mean, that was, you know. So I, I, I don't know that I fully invest in the whole they wanted to be a pop band type thing. I think they wanted to be successful. They wanted to be famous. They wanted to be, you know, stars of whatever variety, but you know, you guys know better than I, I have the distinct impression based on what I've read is that, that these guys are at a, at a, at a, um, uh, school, whatever, a, a boarding school, prep school, they get together, they have a band and they come, they get in, they, meet up with a friend and the friend's like, yeah, let's, I'm going to record you guys and I'm going to do this. And I feel like for this album, right. they're being, they're being guided in a direction that isn't necessarily their, their norm, right? They're, they're kind of being guided to do something that maybe they wouldn't have done. And I guess that's kind of what I, even when I say they're trying to be a pop band, it's like, I feel like in their first album, they're sort of, they're not being allowed to be themselves. They're they're kind of being guided, and I don't know if that's true or not. That's just the impression that I have from what I've read. Yeah, we're getting into lore, and uh, and I, I'm going to take the mic at some point. Uh, Joe, do you have anything to say here? Yeah, Ken, please do, because it looks like you're going to wrap your head with duct tape pretty soon. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, <laughs> so I think the thing that we need to keep in mind is that. Well, actually, there are two things we need to keep in mind. These guys were so incredibly young at this point. I mean, they were like, what, 16, 17? And and this is interesting. You hear this from other prog bands, but it seems to be much stronger, more prevalent in the Genesis story. And that is this idea that they literally had no idea what they were doing. And so they were just doing whatever they thought they could or should do. So, yeah, I think that, you know, when they were recording in that, that first studio from that bandmate, um, which sounds not terribly unlike, you know, our own home studios, um, I think they were just, you know, trying to figure out how to record stuff. You know, think about how we all started with that. And then I think it went on from there. Oh, man, you, you covered so much in that short period of time. Um, before we get away from the, uh, the whole, you know, are they writing pop songs or whatever? Uh, apparently they, you know, Genesis wanted to be the Bee Gees, but similar to, 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 to early. Yes. I'm picking up vibes of, um, the USA West coast, San Francisco style, Jefferson airplane, hippie right. music. There's a little bit of marching in there. Totally. Uh, yeah, I, I mentioned you know they're partying, but they're simultaneously marching on Washington. Uh, <laughs> you know that's I, there's a little bit of that in there, but but um, you know I don't know what what it is about you know British culture, or whatever. But 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 there is a disease out there, man. So 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 uh, 
for for everything good he did, producer Jonathan King does have a, a black mark on his record. And I, I mean, I don't know if you heard about, you know, trouble in Britain. Uh, TV host Jimmy Savile, you know, turned out to be a pedophile. Well, for whatever it's worth, uh, this this great producer Jonathan King uh, has uh, some issues on his his records with. Uh, 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 going after teenage boys. So um, it, it, it's a horrible story, but we can't let it slide. So, so we, need to, we need to call it out where it is. Um, John, Jonathan King may have found a lot of talent in the British preparatory schools and, and, and been responsible for kicking off Genesis, but God damn, he was probably trolling those, those prep schools for the wrong fucking reasons. So, uh, just, 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 just throwing that out there. And, you know, um, there's a show called, uh, peep show and, and it makes me laugh my ass off. It's very vulgar, uh, uh, comedy within the last decade. Check it out if, if, if you haven't, but it's ridiculous how many jokes the British can make out of the word pedo. And, um, uh, uh, now I know why, because in their culture, they've had, they've had, yeah, so, 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 some pretty bizarre shit. And here in America, you know, we had the Catholic Church. So uh, uh, there's that. But then we're going to ignore all that for the rest of the goddamn palaver, and we're just going to look at the good side of life. And this dude who was trolling the prep schools found some amazing musicians and recorded them and scored them with some, you know, uh, amazing uh, orchestral players, strings and brass, and kind of made this this concoction here. And 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 from Genesis to Revelation is a pretty damn interesting concoction. I love listening to it. I love talking about it. I, I just yeah, I'm ready to go track by track. Uh, now, Joe, you what 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 do you, what do you have to say here? So yeah, um, obviously I had also come across um, that story in doing my prep for this. And it's interesting, though, in Rutherford's account of this, he, he also addresses it, but he clearly indicates that at least as far as, you know, I guess his knowledge and the, towards the members of Genesis, there was nothing funny going on. Um, with regards to Jonathan King and the members of Genesis. And Rutherford is fairly upfront in saying, you know, while he accepts what Jonathan King did and, and understands the unfortunateness of it, um, at the same time, Jonathan King also gave Genesis their break, and he understands and appreciates that as well for what it is. So there's that. True. Okay. Okay. Fair enough. It didn't sell well. So <laughs> initially, I mean, I, I, I'm sure just for nostalgia and folks like us, it, it, it sold brilliantly in the later years, but at the time it did not sell well. Yeah. So it, it's interesting about that, that first pressing of the album. I think, um, you know, the, the official stories are that it sold like 600 copies or something to that effect. Um, but what is really, really fascinating is apparently Jonathan King still owns the rights to that recording and will let virtually anyone um, license it for a nominal fee. And apparently that accounts for the wide variety of presentations 
on which this particular collection of songs is available because, you know, for, and I, I don't know what exactly the, uh, the number is, but it's nominal, but for nominal fee, you can then, you know, do your own pressing of from Genesis to revelation. I mean, yes, had the same thing. I mean, they made a brilliant album. Uh, there was just a lot of stuff available. Competition was uh, rampant. Um, there's a little, there's a little bit on the wikis that, that state that some record stores filed their album under religious music because of the title. Yeah. Yeah. So Ken, maybe you'd like to get us started off with the timeline. <clears throat> well, I, I'm thrilled because I pull up the Wikipedia timeline of progressive rock for 1969. And the first band that's listed in February is uh, Jefferson airplane. Bless it. Pointed little head, um, and 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 my whole vibe there was that they're they're definitely somehow being influenced by that scene. Um, Vanilla Fudge, if you recall the story, I think it was uh, Bill Bruford didn't know who Vanilla Fudge was, but said he could play like them just to get into Yes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and and I I don't know how progressive they were, but they made it on the timeline. The Birds with. Uh, Dr. Birds and Mr. Hyde made it on here. Uh, and then in March, that's, that's our album from Genesis to Revelation was uh, released on the 7th of March. Um, the Mothers of Invention, Uncle Meat, the Moody Blues on the Threshold of a Dream, uh, Chicago, to the extent that they were Prague in the early days, Chicago Transit Authority was released. George Harrison releasing Electric Sound. There's just a lot going on. T-Rex, Unicorn, The Who, Tommy, Traffic, Last Exit, Captain Beefheart and his Magic Band, Trout Mask Replica. I, oh, my God. That has spawned so much writing, so many YouTube videos, and so many commentaries. It's, it's huh. just um, it's insane. 1969, Yes released Yes. Pink Floyd released more. Miles Davis in a Silent Way. Jethro Tull, Stand Up. The Beatles, Abbey Fucking Road in September. Yep. Uh, the Nice, The Nice in September, Soft Machine, Volume 2 in September, Vandergraaf Generator, The Aerosol Gray Machine. <laughs> before the year is open, <laughs> before the year is done, Vanilla Fudge has another release. King Crimson in the Court of the Crimson King. Frank Zappa, Hot Rats. Pink Floyd, uh, Umaguma. I mean, it just doesn't stop. Uh, the year is not even over. It's November. Moody Blues. To our children's children's children. Mm. Let's see. Let, uh, Fairport Convention, Renaissance. Oh. Um, it's, it, they're just, it's just cooking. Yeah, you know, it's interesting, Ken. I never, ever would have thought, you know, okay, this album sold 650 copies. It never would have even occurred to me that it could have just been like a competitive thing. The list of albums that you just rattled off. Is like mind-boggling, right? Yeah. Right? We, and we talked about this when we talked about, yes, right? We talked about how all this great shit was coming out right before we were all born, right? Exactly. Unreal, yeah. So as we get into to the Genesis catalog, and we start here with From Genesis to Revelation, it's fascinating, right? Because there's always that discussion. Well, not always, but there is often that discussion with the Genesis catalog of when the Genesis catalog actually begins. 
Um, when all of the reissues were done in the around, I guess it was 2007, whatever the case may be, um, all of the reissues, the CD booklets, had a page on the inside that listed all of the Genesis albums with their little album covers. Except it started at Trespass, and a lot of the, you know, uh, accepted histories, if you will, will start at Trespass and not cover from Genesis to Revelation. I think that's a two-part thing. One, um, Jonathan King owns and the the rights to this recording, whereas the rest of the recordings are owned by others, presumably you know Atlantic or whoever the hell they are. Um, but the other thing is, this album obviously is a little bit different. Uh, we've seen before where first albums are, you know, a band may take an album or two or three to sort of get their feet underneath them. And in this particular case, you've got a, a band of very, very young musicians who are, are literally just learning how to play their instrument uh, as well as how to write songs. Um, as and, and so what happens is from Genesis to Revelation sounds a little bit different, maybe, and I think Trespass takes a big step in the direction to what Genesis would ultimately become. But I just, I find it interesting then, um, you know, that you have to sort of have a conversation about where where you start counting, you know, when Genesis started. But for me, I definitely think this is, um, you know, part of the canon, as it were, because there are aspects um, or moments or, you know, facets of this album where it is very, very clear what Genesis will become. You can see the artists that you know, these guys are, are going to be sort of manifesting themselves this early, and it's very, very cool. So, you know, I just, I put that out there as sort of a, a starting point for for considering this, but I'm very, very excited to, you know, finally be in to the Genesis catalog and be able to talk about these albums, because I find Genesis to just be a fascinating, fascinating group. So let's get to the particulars then. From Genesis to Revelation was released in March of 1969, as Ken mentioned. It was um, produced by Jonathan King and released on the label DECA. The personnel included Peter Gabriel on lead vocals and flute, Tony Banks, organ, piano, and backing vocals, Anthony Phillips on guitars and backing vocals, Mike Rutherford on bass guitar, guitar, backing vocals, and John Silver on drums, except for The Silent Sun. Chris Stewart played the drums on Silent Sun. Arthur Greenslade is credited with the strings and horn arrangement. The track listing is Where the Sour Turns to Sweet, In the Beginning, Fireside Song, The Serpent, Am I Very Wrong, In the Wilderness. Side two is then The Conqueror, In Hiding, One Day, Window, in Limbo, Silent Sun, and A Place to Call My Own. From Genesis to Revelation is the debut studio album by the English rock band Genesis, released in March 69 on Decca Records. The album originated from a collection of demos recorded in 1967 while the members of Genesis were pupils of Charterhouse School in Galdalming, Surrey. 
It caught the attention of Jonathan King, who named the group, organized deals with his publishing company and DECA, and studio time at Regent Sound Studios to record a series of singles and a full album. A string section arranged and conducted by Arthur Green Slade was later added on some songs. By the time Genesis had finished recording, John Silver had replaced original drummer Chris Stewart. So the album opens up with Where the Sour Turns to Sweet. Um, you know, listening to this, it, it's so much fun going back and listening to this album, you know, to start off this exercise, right? Because it, they're clearly, you know, not mature as musicians or songwriters at this point. And so I think that that definitely comes across. But at the same time, you get this this idea, um, this glimpse of who they're going to be, right? You, you can sort of see the, pun intended, the genesis of who Genesis will become. And it's it's there. And sometimes it pops up and sometimes it doesn't. Um, you know, so I, I just, I, I find this album to be totally fascinating. On a completely side note, um, I would like to point out that I have been listening to this on my super duper cool colorless vinyl version. And it really does sound spectacular and it looks cool as hell. But um, going back to where the sour turns to sweet. So the piano hook is very, very cool. I'm not so sure about the snapping. It's a little weird for me. Um, it's just fascinating. Uh, I definitely get the hippie march in Sour Turns to Sweet. We're waiting for you. Come and join us now. Uh, has that that inclusive hippie music vibe. Uh, I, I called it aggressive but inclusive. <laughs> And I always love the beatnik snaps at the end, acapella. It's such a vibe. Yeah. Um, I don't really like the panning that's happening here. I know it's 1969 and all that, but I, I sat down to listen to this album really for the first time, you know, for this exercise. And I was laying in bed and I started listening to this. And I, you know, within the first minute, I was like, oh, this is going to be long. This is going to be a long long exercise <laughs> which is pretty funny because you know <laughs> all of these songs i mean compared to what we normally listen to all of these songs are short i mean almost the whole album is is, is just a little bit longer than supper's ready so it's kind of funny from that perspective the, the thing the funny thing you mentioned about the snaps is that those snaps are like all you fucking hear in popular music today right like the snaps have replaced the snare drum in um in modern music so i think I, it's kind of it's clever that that they're here and uh yeah so so uh, you know i i love your comment ken about about jefferson airplane because although i don't necessarily hear it in this track i th i think a lot of this is really from my perspective, because I'm going back to listening to this, yeah, really fresh. Um, it, a lot of it just—I I hate to say this word, but a lot of it just seems to me unoriginal. So derivative. I mean, yeah, yeah but 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 we were derivative. I mean, I don't know what we we're uh, yeah ripping off. You know, everything from uh, White Snake to Genesis. To and I and I and I do still blame 
I don't blame them for it. I don't think it's their fault. I blame Jonathan King. Ah, ah. Well, um, yeah. Jefferson Airplane actually had their first album in like 66, something in 67, 67, 68. So there would have been enough material out there for, for yeah. that kind of stuff to influence them. I don't want to skip ahead, but to me, like the serpent is what like Jefferson Airplane right through your eyeballs, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Good point. Good point. All right. Well, there is fireside song is, is next. Oh, sorry. In the beginning. Yeah. 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 So I definitely like in the beginning. Um, I, I, I just like this song a lot. I think the, the, the vocal hook is super, super sweet. Um, really, really, you know, kind of catchy. I like the way they did that. The, the just I, I I like the the dichotomy between the guitars here. How the the distorted guitar just you know kind of comes out of nowhere, and you're like, oh, okay, that's pretty cool. But yet the verse guitars are very jangly, um, you know. And, and I just I, I like that sort of that contrast, if you will. And you know this here again, this is one of those things. So your second song on the album, and all of a sudden, not all of a sudden, but you know, and now Mike Rutherford is is just rocking out right on the bass line, which is very very cool to hear. There's kind of like a Beatles vibe um, to me for to, in the beginning. Um, oh yeah, like but but the weird thing is, it's so crazy. Is it's like a Beatles vibe from, and maybe this is part of their youth, yes. right? It's a Beatles vibe to me. That's that's sort of like Revolver or. Or rubber soul, and 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 meanwhile, what, what Beatles album was released? Was it um, what Abbey, did you say? Road, Abbey Road? Oh my gosh! Like what? Like think about where the Beatles were at this time. Goodness. So that takes us to Fireside Song. Um, I don't think this one's that great. Uh, I think the the orchestration is is very distracting, and there's just not a whole lot about this that. I really get excited about the, the existing Wikipedia article does a really good job to articulate what we kind of went through um, under the recording section. Second paragraph King noticed the band's tendency to expand and complicate their arrangements, which he, which he disliked and suggested they stick to straightforward pop songs. They should have just fired him then. <laughs> this culminated in, in King either trimming Banks' solo spots or removing them entirely, much to Banks' annoyance. In response, Gabriel and Banks... <laughs> <laughs> much to his annoyance. Really? Uh, I'm removing your part entirely. <laughs> Sorry. I hope that doesn't annoy you. Oh, you know why I like it? I call it total Tony. It, it, the, it's just the piano is it, really there. So, so, so whether or not you dig the hooks and the whole song, um, you're definitely getting your, your fair share of Tony Banks as he's carrying this, this track. Um, although I did uh, on the forever drifting uh, section, I call that total Peter. He just gets so deep and so emotional and so romantic it's beautiful uh but uh, either you like this chorus or you don't once upon a time there was confusion uh 
and it's it just it's it's beautiful for me. It it, it it works. I can sing along with eighty percent of this album, just having. And, and there were years and years where I didn't listen to this, but I put it in, and it all comes back to me. So, I'm I'm quite I, that that is awesome, Ken. I'm quite distracted with perhaps the heavy-handed application of the orchestra in this uh, in this piece. <laughs> So that takes us into the the serpent. So, you know, this album is generally speaking very very, you know, 1960s, right? And that's because that's, you know, what Jonathan King was, that's what they were trying to do apparently at that point. Um you guys have already made mention obviously of the Jefferson Airplane influence here. Um to me, it reminds me very much like something, something about the vocal line of Greg Lakes. I believe in father Christmas. So uh, I wrote, um, white rabbit implicit in the riff, mm-hmm. meaning another reference to Jefferson airplane. Mm-hmm. Oh, oh, oh. And crappy, ah, backing vocals. It's so funny. Cause you, you, Peter is like professional out of the gate. And clearly the orchestral players are professional, but every once in a while you get to look at, you know, the paint cracks and, and, and you kind of hear the amateurish thinging. And, 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 and usually what I notice first is like the ahs are a little forced, you know, they're like kind of trying to be the BGs in the wrong range. And it's like, ah, <laughs> <clears throat> So, so the backing vocals were, were, were a little weird, but I dig, I dig the whole thing. Creator made the serpent wise. So it goes from the serpent to am I very wrong? I've got to be honest. I just don't get this one at all. Um, I'd be interested to hear this without the French horn because I, I here again, I find that French horn just totally throws me off my game and I can't, I can't really process anything about this song. It just, it's overwhelming me. Well, I, I like the false intro. I like how Tony Banks is just a cacophony of intros and reprises. He's just great. So um, they have a false intro. It's a compositional technique. I love the line, the happiness machine is trying hard to sing my song. I don't know who's singing happy birthday, friend. It might be Anthony Phillips. It's it. I I do like the fact that there are two singers in the song, just for historical purposes, gives you something interesting to listen to. Cacophony. Yeah, it seems like it seems like all. I've never really thought about this before, but some of these, all these fake intros, are probably this this concept album, right? The instrumental in, interludes trying to weave these tracks in and out, even though they all end up just being at the beginning of every track. I guess so. Uh-huh. It doesn't. It never really feels like connective tissue, though, right? Because it always feels like one song always definitively ends, and then there's like the little interlude to start the next song, which is odd because sometimes the songs are only like three and a half minutes long, and you've got this thirty-second fake ending anyway, or fake fake beginning. Yeah. So in the wilderness, right? This vocal is so very Peter, and this is just you know this is one of those instances where. Again, you've got these really, really young guys. You've got their first, you know, foray into writing and and 
recording and performing music. And here is this just clear, clear indication of the artist and the singer that Peter Gabriel is going to be. It's, it's exhilarating in some regards that you get to see this um, so fully formed here in, in this example. I just, I absolutely love it. Yeah. I, I almost don't need the titles. I just need to know the chorus and this one, I don't call it in the wilderness. I call it music. All I hear is music and I look for something else. Um, it's just amazing. It's powerful. Oh, the beginning. Uh, I said a surprisingly efficient piano intro. It's not a fake. Is it? <laughs> <laughs> it's not a fake. <laughs> and the crescendo is just awesome. Uh, I mean, and, 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 and you can, you know, call the, the orchestra whatever you'd like, but, but it really works out here when it swells into that chorus. I love it. There's a little bit of marching here, and I'm, I'm already good with that. And at the end, there's a soft piano reprise, which 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 works. Um, oh, the harmonies in the chorus are actually good. You don't get those weird ahs. Uh, there's just a, a nice two-part harmony, on something underneath uh, Peter's voice that really works for me. Yeah. So my only note is like there's I really like the dynamics in this. I think the orchestra dynamics are really nice in here, even though the drums are only in my left ear. Um, but joe and and ken you just mentioned it but that that the part about peter gabriel in this song is it is it's and to me i think it sticks out like a sore thumb on this album in a very nice way right that you don't really get that anywhere else it's like all of a sudden it's like whoa there he is right that's cool so now we can flip the clear vinyl over and start side two with the conqueror you know, one of the things, my, one of my notes here is that I don't hear what Tony's going to become here. Um, you know, this is one of those cases where what uh, what you're hearing doesn't necessarily point to where where they're going to go. Is that because he's only on piano? I, I don't think that's the case because there are actually some albums um, in the late Peter... Uh, era and the uh, the early non-Peter era where actually Peter plays a lot of piano. Uh, I'm sorry, not Peter. Tony. Tony actually plays a lot of, of piano. But I just, I don't get it here. And it's, I don't know, it's very, very strange. It is nice on this song, though, that, that uh, Anthony starts really rocking out now. And, you know, by all accounts, at this point, Anthony Phillips was the most accomplished musician in the group and i don't know that it's always showcased here to full effect but i think in this particular song it is is it hard to tell is it hard to tell which side you're on on the clear vinyl (laughs) i feel like the character of the peter gabriel old man comes out in the conqueror um he just he, he kind of does a character voice and i feel like it's a little preview of what's to come with him the ah backing vocal really mm-hmm. finally hits the mark here on this particular song there's some nice ahs <laughs> and i wrote that there is kind of a retardando ending they kind of slow down at the end in the place where the conqueror lived. kind of just nice cute little succinct ending that i like yeah I feel like you could take this 
song and drop it into the album Tommy, and it would fit perfectly. Sure. Uh, I'm, I'm I'm not sure where, but I get that same kind of feel, which is kind of it's their contemporary albums of of one another. It's it's rather interesting. It's just got mm. that that kind of shuffly kind of. I don't know if it's I don't know if you'd classify it as a shuffle or not. It's not really a shuffle. But the 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 kind of the beat that goes through this song just kind of fits, and I think the Oz. I think you're right, Ken. I like the the Oz kind of hit the mark on this song, and maybe that's part of what 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 takes me um, to there. But in hiding, you know, the the first thing that sort of struck me about this song is I really like the layering of the chorus and the verses. Um. You know, it's funny, I've, I've listened this far into the album, and I haven't really noticed the drums at all, right? Whoever th- the drummer is, either one of them, there's just nothing really going on here that makes you sit up and and pay attention. Um, you know, there are some some Ringo Starr moments on, uh, on side one, but... You know, and my tongue is firmly in my cheek when I say Ringo Starr moments because a Ringo Starr moment, you know, it, it's, I don't know, damning praise, if you will. Um, and so, you know, I don't know, besides the layering of, of the chorus and verses, I just, you know, I, it's okay. Yeah. At least this one, the title makes sense to me because he sings the title in a, in a spot that makes sense to me. Um, <laughs> um, but this song is otherwise known as, uh, pick me up, put me down, push me in, turn me around, switch me on, let me go. I have a mind of my own. Um, but the, the dynamics really work and the melodies really work. And it, it, I suppose you could take this into songwriting 101 and say, Hey, this is actually a crafted song. There are a couple songs. On, on this album and I probably mostly started to fall asleep by this point in time when I would listen to this. So, so I'm going to probably just respectfully bow out, but I, but the funny, I do have a note here and it's on a couple of songs and it's the ones with the orchestra where there's like a meandering sort of violin line high, high in the, you know, behind the melodies and where the singing is really like the singing is really good. They're, they're singing, right? It's, it's, they're they're singing in a comfortable range. It's not it's not like it's not like what we just talked about with Peter Gabriel sort of showing us what he's going to be in the future. And it just reminds me of the shit my parents used to listen to, right? Like I can almost picture my mom like cooking dinner and singing along with like it's almost like Barbara Streisandish and and things like that, and I don't. I don't mean to be provocative. It's just like that's like what some of this evokes when I when I listen to it, um, like the I'm Carpenters not, and Cher and all. Yeah, that. and I'm not saying it's music. not saying it's bad. I'm just saying it like that's kind of what, again, from the perspective that I'm coming at it, it's it's it, it and it just kind of it just kind of turns me off, and I and I. And I love listening to to hearing you talk about it, Ken, and you singing along in the lyrics because I, I just end up getting so distracted because of my <laughs> point of view. You know what I mean? Well, let's let's address that because there there was clearly a peak. Um, I mean, I often say that you know 
the baby boomers succeeded in so many things because they had so many opportunities and so much culture and it was post-war and gas was cheap and college was cheap and they did these things and they were amazing people and everything they touched turned to gold. And, and, and we came into it and we like took all that shit for granted. They were like brilliant pieces of music and television shows and movies that we just pissed on because we just took everything for granted. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, like Stephen Wilson mentions, you know, about all the different aspects of music and growing up, not realizing there were all these genres. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, like the shit that my parents listened to, like I I hear that now and I'm like, oh, you know, like I love it. it takes me back. <laughs> and and it's like, yeah, it's like how did I how did I miss that? I mean, I'm still a avid as Joe, I know you are an avid Barry Manilow fan to this day. Yeah. And you know, my parents took disco lessons. I watched them practicing their disco moves in my living room, you know, listening oh, to man. the Saturday Night Fever uh, soundtrack. I mean, my crazy. Na- oh, my neighbors had Super Tramp. And that was amazing. Oh, Breakfast wow. In America. Yeah. Oh. Oh. Uh, okay. All right. So, so I don't know if we need to finish this album, but, but, you know, we, we hit that, we hit, we hit the vibe of it. Yeah. So, you know, I, I totally get it, Paul. At this point, uh, you know, I, I kind of lose a little focus myself. And, you know, so I'll just kind of go through the, these these last couple songs um, here. So one day, I, I don't care for the string section, and it's it, you know it's another case where the orchestration just becomes so distracting. Um, window has some jangly guitars to it. Um, in limbo now, in limbo, Mike Rutherford rocks on this one. Um, and you know they it, this one shows that they're clearly starting to learn how to to write melodies, which is very very cool. Um, spinet piano question mark French horn question mark. Uh, the the chorus medley is 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 perfect. Um, I always love this song. He's singing about something about the albatross. Only Jack Frost saw the kiss you gave him in return. I will always love that line. Mm. Um, I wrote in limbo, not a lot to offer me and probably not on the cassette recording that I had. Mm. Uh, yeah. I wonder if Mike, I wonder if Mike Rutherford was just the whole time going, Oh God, I, I can't wait till I get to be in both speakers. <laughs> so silent sun, right? Um, you know, say what you want to about the Bee Gees pastiche and whether or not it was a contrived song in order to, you know, garner favor with Jonathan King and keep their deal or whatever the case may be. But this is the song that we have to thank that there's Genesis, right? So we have to give a little bit of credit to this song, what, whatever else you might think about it. Um, it. It did, you know, provide them you know, enough runway to get started. So that's, that's very, very cool. You know, it's, it's, it's their deal with the devil, so to speak. And, and ironically, it's, it's mostly strings, which I find to be very, very funny. Um, it's not bad. I don't know that it's going to uh, change the world, but you know, there you go. Um, 
I said perfect. I just always like this look. Um, baby, you feel so close. Wish you could see my love. Baby, you changed my life. Oh my god, it's just, it's just, it, it, it's sappy and it, it all works. Um, I wish the strings were buried a little bit, but the song is very succinct. And then finally, um, a place to call my own. And you know, it's it's funny. So there is a Peter Gabriel song from, I believe, his second solo album called "Here Comes the Flood." However, um, that one is you know played with a full band and and everything else, and it's it's a little bit different. But on his you know mid to late nineteen nineties greatest hits collection, he had a, a, a different version. That was basically him uh, with a with a piano, I believe, and it's that version of "Here Comes the Flood" that this song reminds me of. And I've always, oh, I really don't care for the original one on the uh, the original recording, but that that piano version that's on that greatest hits moves me like few other things do, and. Um, yeah, so you know, I don't know. I just I that's what I think of when I think of this. So very very cool. The song didn't register with me like the others. Um, I acknowledge it. It's good. It fits. Um, but it just it isn't one of those incredibly memorable choruses that I sing along with in the car. Um, I just I, I just I just love having this in my repertoire of songs in total the album just will always you know stir things up for me and, and the melodies are just uh that simple to be that good mm. so i think that's pretty much going to close out from genesis to revelation and next episode we will take one step closer to realizing the beauty that is genesis with Trespass. I can't wait to talk about that one. So thanks, guys. Appreciate it. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Progressive Palaver. As always, we've enjoyed sharing the conversation with you, and we welcome, invite, and solicit your feedback, your input, your comments, your questions. You can reach us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. We are at Progpala, P-R-O-G-P-A-L-A, on all of those, or you can search for Progressive Palaver. You're also welcome to email us. Our email address is progpala at gmail.com. Progressive Palaver is available for subscription and download on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. And we are hosted on SoundCloud. So until next time, thanks for listening. Thank you.